Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton. Now, usually we have new guests for you, but this week the radio show got bumped for Brexit. Of course it did. So instead, we're bringing you two of our favourite interviews from the last six months. First up, it's Carrie Gracie talking about taking on the BBC. And then we have Mandy Reid from the Women's Equality Party. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! One of our absolute heroines fighting this battle for us is a BBC editor, presenter, all round absolute badass, Carrie Gracie. Hello, welcome to the studio. Hello, Hello. Uh, So, Carrie, back in January 2018, you essentially became probably the most high-profile unequal pay case Mm. out there. What made you decide to go public with it? Uh, We had been fighting, trying to talk reason to our bosses, and that was a lot of us by then, um, women at the BBC, because I was one of many. And we'd been trying to make a reasoned argument, talk sense, talk about the values of the BBC plus the law. Mm. Um, and we weren't getting anywhere. And just got to the point where I thought, do you know what? If you think about history, how many times in a big fight over power, money, status have men given women or bosses, powerful people given women things without them having to fight it. I think at the end of the day, you have to work out where your power lies and use it because making a reasoned argument is not going to win in those Mm, circumstances. So I decided, look, I'm at that point, I was 55 years old. I've got a body of work. No one can take that away from me. I've got a lot of credibility with my colleagues because I've been there for 30 years. Probably if anyone's going to do this, I've paid off a lot of my mortgage. My kids are reaching adulthood. If anyone's going to take this risk and go up over the top in this public way, um, I can do this thing. Mm. So for anyone who isn't aware of your case, set the scene of what was happening. So the BBC is nearly a century old. And like um, many organisations and workplaces, I don't have to tell you, I don't have to tell your listeners, it's got a gender pay gap. Um, It's fair to say about the BBC that its gender pay gap is actually smaller than most other media organisations. It's got a lot of women in high-profile jobs, fierce and outspoken women, uh, to its credit. And in a way, that was the problem. It had put enough women into, or or not enough, but put some women into high-profile roles. But then it hadn't played them equally. Mm. And on the... A weird thing happened because it is public service broadcaster and because Parliament was getting fed up and the government was getting fed up with um, the pay of senior managers and senior stars at the BBC and got to the point where in 2017 the BBC was forced to publish the pay that was higher than the Prime Minister. So it came out along with the annual report on the 19th of July. I don't think anyone involved expected events to happen in the way that they did because women just looked at it and went... Oh, my word, I'm doing the same job as him. And I've been told for years that I was paid equally or roughly equally, and I'm clearly not. So what on earth is going on? And I was one of those women to whom that happened. And I suppose in my case, there was a... I mean, everyone's got an individual bit of their pay story, haven't they? There's some things that are structural and affect all of us, and then there are some things that are individual. And in my case... I had been sent off to China four years earlier to do this really quite hard job, in my view. Spoke Chinese, had been, you know, in and out of China for 30 years by that stage. I was 
in a field of about one in terms of people who could do the job that I was doing as the BBC's first China editor. And at the point that I was appointed, I said, look, if you want me to do this job, because I, I didn't actually apply for it. And in fact, I had turned it down and they kept pushing. And I said, if you want me to do this job, I have a couple of conditions. And one of the, them is that you pay me equally mm. because it is a big job. I One of the reasons I'm going to do it is because I want women to be seen doing big on-air reporter roles, yeah. just like the men. And therefore, you are going to pay me equally. And um, so four years later, when I turned around and discovered that the North America editor was being paid possibly nearly twice as much as me. He was in that band that was between 200 and 250,000. I was earning 134,000. It's a lot of money. I had mm. no problem with my salary, but I really did have a problem with the inequality. Yes. And I think that's such an interesting thing about your case, which is I remember reading about it and you were like, no, I am not interested in the money. This is not about you paying me more. This is about you paying me equally yeah. for the job I'm doing. And I think so often when women talk about the pay gap, go, oh, women here, it's just, you just want a bit more money. Just, and it's actually, we really don't. I really don't want more money. I just want to be paid equally. So it's, it's, you make a really good point because it, it was quite complex. It is complex. Across the BBC, there are... Um, there are some people who are high profile and yeah. naturally the media focuses on them, you know, the big name presenters. Yeah. And they are earning a lot of money and it is a public service broadcaster. And it's easy for the media to focus on them because it wants to talk about the big names. And it's easy for the enemies and kind of backlash lobby to want to talk about them because they go, oh, they're just spoilt princesses, they're ungrateful. Yeah. People in public service shouldn't be earning so much anyway. And... That kind of muddies the argument because actually we were fighting for the hundreds of thousands of women in the BBC yeah. who are mm. don't have the profile and are often on, you know, 22,000, 23,000, you know, they're not earning a lot of money and they're being paid less than a man. And the point needed to be made that this was an argument about principle. And what was the response when you went to your boss and said, I've seen these, let's have a chat about principle? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's kind of hard for bosses because yeah. I, I, and I think in this, the BBC is just like workplaces across yeah. this country and across this world. Bosses, and obviously a lot of bosses are men, not all, but bosses I see as like ostriches with their head in the sand and a big Jenga tower on their back when it comes yeah. to pay. And their, their pay structures are incredibly vulnerable often because they literally have not been done with criteria of fairness, value, the law, actually in mind. Uh, they're, they're, because they never expect to have to explain them. Yeah. Um, they, Which is one of the problems that I have with pay in our country is it's so taboo. Mm. And the secrecy around it and the difficulty of establishing the facts of your pay are so great um, that women find it very hard to argue with bosses because bosses will just say, yeah, you're paid about equally. And how are you ever going to find out that yeah. that's not true? So when we started the conversation, um, the immediate response, I think, of the of our boss class was to was to think, oh, we got this. You know, we've been you know, we, we've dealt with women on pay issues before. Get them in a corner, divide and rule them, get them down in a silo with an equal pay grievance or whatever it is or a pay complaint. Tell them all these explanations. We've got a whole list of them. We've rolled them out year after year, decade after decade. He's got more experience than you. You're in development. We're promoting him for potential. It's a legacy issue. You know, the, the excuses are endless and they never expect that you're going to have any comeback. And I think what was different about our case, the women at the BBC who came to get together to form this group, BBC Women, was we just go, no, no. You know, we're done with all of this. We're all going to exchange information. So we all knew the justifications that were being offered to other women. And that meant we could see that in one situation, profile was, um, you know, w was valuable when a man had the profile. If a woman had the profile, it was less valuable. Yeah. When a man had experience or a certain kind of experience, yeah. then experience was valuable. When a man has skills, when a man had whatever. So it was like apples are worth this amount, i.e. a lot when a man is an apple and worth less if a woman is an apple, and oranges are worth more if the man is the orange. So it's like, in other words, there was a gender problem in our view. There mm -hmm. was inconsistency about the criteria used. And by mapping it 
which we slowly, patiently and very determinedly did over months, we could see that there really was a problem. And we could also see as the months went past that our bosses were just not prepared to, you know, reboot the system, which is what we were demanding. So the thing that stands out for me in that story, and it... I remember it at the time, but it's more poignant when you say it is the togetherness mm. because they've been able to get away with it year after year because they broke you down into individuals. And as an individual, you don't have a voice to say this is wrong. But the togetherness, um, and maybe was the togetherness a symptom of the time? Did it, did it feel right to come together versus saying, actually, I'm going to fight you know, by myself or, or not say anything? So, yes. I mean, you've got to remember the moment at which this happened is also the Me Too moment. Mm. Yeah. And... One of the things, so there were a lot of things that were reminiscent for us in that moment, because if you think about that, that also was a story where the Hollywood stars got a lot of the focus. But actually, what was incredibly powerful about that story was it rolled through every workplace, mm. every country, every pay grade. And women could start to see a pattern. They could see a pattern in the abuse, which was, well, about all kinds of things that we probably don't have time to get into but it was also about the ways that workplaces tried to close them down mm -hmm. had tried to close them down the silence that had been posed imposed through confidentiality clauses non-disclosure agreements and we knew that that had happened on pay on equal pay issues in our organization and in other workplaces so we knew we had to come together um, in order to fight it. There was no other way. However, um, you know, workplaces are really determined not to let you fight together. Mm. So they wouldn't allow a group grievance, which the National Union of Journalists tried to mount on behalf of a lot of these women, over 100 women. They just, just wouldn't tolerate it. So all the cases were broken down one by one by one. And we all had to go into our pay uh, dis negotiations and then our grievances um, on our own, you could take one person with you. Mm. So, I mean, it was powerful when senior, you know, the top names that you're familiar with, you know, in BBC Radio, yeah. Entertainment, Sport News, go walking into a room with a junior producer and you could see the manager go pale yeah. and the HR person tremble at the knees when they saw, like, a really big-name, fierce female <laughs> presenter going in along somebody um, junior. And we were making the point, no woman left behind. Yeah. This is a team effort. And we are still making that point day in, day out. And it is a slog. And I would like to say it is too long that women have been doing unpaid work on this yeah. to assert the value of their work. I mean, it's a black joke, isn't yeah. it? That's a, that this is happening still. How, what, what were the men, uh, the men's responses when they found out? Because you know it's a very comfortable position. You're a man. You're being paid double than somebody else. It's a, you know, how were they in terms of speaking out and supporting what you were yeah. doing or not? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. That's the whole of chapter nine in my book is about the men. And it's quite difficult for me because I actually had to be quite frontal about criticising some men in this in my story and in, in, in the BBC story. And I... Um, what happened early on, and, and again, I go through this earlier in the book, um, is that some men tried to engage with the issue and tried to help. And then other men, other men, senior men I'm talking about now, at the very beginning when 44 senior women news, entertainment, sport, wrote an open letter to the director general and said, you know, you need to sort this out. And um, there were one or two men, senior men, who wanted to get a men's letter together. Uh, I've written about this in chapter one of the book, actually. Um, and then the other men, a lot of them said, no, let's not rock the boat. Um, this is, you know, a very difficult issue. Let's just not get involved, basically. Mm. And then I knew about this in kind of in my own story because I went to establish the facts of my pay over my own, you know, working life. I, I started writing to the men that I'd worked alongside saying, I can understand that you might not want to divulge your pay details, but, you know, this has happened to us and we think there is a structural issue in play here and I need to ask. And you're totally at liberty. I completely understand if you don't want to talk about it, but I would really like to ask if you're prepared to share your pay details for this period when we work together or this period like that we're in now. And, you know, some men shared and other men didn't share. It's life. Some women share and other women don't share. I mean, I don't think it's right to get too, you know, self-righteous or aggrieved or indignant with men who don't share because we're all on a journey in this, aren't we? And, uh, you know, it's again, I've got a lot of advice for men in the book because I think 
men are often the powerful people in the workplace and men are the powerful people in the pay conversation. And if they get on board and help women, they can actually make change happen so much faster. Mm. And if they don't, they can block change mm. big time. And obviously for them, it's quite difficult because they don't see the problem because mm. they're not the yep. victim of yep. the problem. Yep. So it's it's available to them to pretend it's not happening. And that's I, I wrote the book for men, at least as much as for women, because I wanted to say, wake up, this is you. Uh, this is you in your workplace and the person you work next to. And this is also, you know, your mother, your daughter, you, you're everybody around you. And it's a case of justice and fairness. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Are you talking there about you know, men kind of being like, oh, I don't, it doesn't affect me, therefore I want to stay out of it. But how do you feel about this report that came out a couple of months ago, which is that men now actively almost don't want to work with women? They are me too, the pay gap. We've apparently scared them so much that they are terrified of mentoring us or supporting us or sponsoring us. So that's obviously a shame if that happens, and um, men need to avoid doing that and think about it. I think I think understanding helps. Um, one of the things that happened to me, when I went public, when I did write the open letter, it was in the Times newspaper, on the morning when I was presenting the Today programme, it was quite a wild mm. day. And immediately, one of the things that started happening, which was the wildest thing of all, was that I started to get hundreds of emails messages of one kind, letters through the post, you know, in the post room at the BBC and at home, um, from other women um, telling me about their stories. So I knew it was in workplaces up and down the country. But it wasn't just women. I, we, we counted them up before because I also did a parliamentary hearing where I had to give evidence on all of this because um, Parliament hauled the BBC in to give an account of itself. And um, so we counted up the letters in January 2018 and three-fifths of them were from women, but two-fifths were from men. There are huge numbers of men out there who support women. Mm. I was really impressed. And actually, throughout my fight, again, it's something I talk about at length, is there's so many great men who came in to support us and stand shoulder to shoulder with us. Not necessarily always the ones who felt their pay might be affected by mm. the conversation. You know, your immediate male comparator, as it's called, an unequal pay issue, but, um, but other men. However, you know, I also do talk about the men who come in to stand alongside the comparators, the, the women who are fighting an equal pay case, and I think that's really interesting, and I want to get this point across as well, if I, if I can, that men are hugely important to this conversation. If a man can go in to the meeting room alongside a woman and sit alongside in the way that I was describing that senior women mm -hmm. did alongside junior women, if a man can go in and do that, that makes an amazingly powerful point. And particularly if that man is the actual male comparator of the women. Because mm. how these conversations go is uh, the woman says, look, my work is valuable. I do this and this. I have this experience. I have these skills. And I've been here for this long and I've been doing X, Y, Z. And... Um, and the boss and the HR person, if they want to fight this equal pay claim or equal pay conversation, they'll go, yeah, but the man X, Y, Z, he has this experience, he has that profile. All that, all those justifications and defences will come into play. If the man's sitting there and if the man just goes calmly, well, actually, she does the same job as me. She's as good as Game me changer. doing the same job as me. Then it moves the woman from square nine to square 90 on the snakes and ladders board. It is very hard for an employer to contest a woman's claim if the man that she is her comparator, her male peer, is saying, do you know what? Same job. It's just so powerful. And, it, and so I would really hope something I talk about again. I mean, there are men doing this, um, yeah. but not enough. Can I, I, sorry, what about um, negotiating? Because uh, there's a lot of conversation around the gender pay gap and about women having better negotiating skills. And mm. I'm thinking about you when you were negotiating your £134,000 salary. You know, you s seem to me as somebody who's confident, you knew, knew your worth. 
what do you do as a woman when you know you think you are confidently negotiating what is a really good salary but then you realize that there's awful lot of money still on the table because they've given that to somebody else like what because I feel like it's one thing to negotiate Mm. really hard but if you knew there was another hundred grand up for grabs like you know how would you how you know how do you navigate knowing your worth that way so um I think it's the important thing is to start from when you go into the workplace so I um my message is to women as soon as they're starting their working lives and they need to start building the muscle um you know and getting in training to do this because it's not so hard I think in your 20s and early 30s but it drops off a cliff your negotiating yeah. power as soon as you, it becomes very difficult for women as obviously as 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 we all know um with the operation of the motherhood penalty when they become you know either parents or when their boss looks at them and says you're the age of a potential you know mm. of a potential parent and and the evidence is all out there. I discuss it at length that the, um, you know, the structural problem of this motherhood penalty, which actually afflicts not just mothers, but women who look as if they might become mothers. Mm. Um, so in answer to your question, I think you have to be in training. You have to know the risk is there. You have to be vigilant all the way through your life. Get confident. You know, we're so inhibited, a lot of us. Certainly I was. I didn't I didn't really have this conversation mm. until I went off to do that China job. I just assumed that the law would protect me, yeah. that my boss was an ethical, you know, my employer was ethical, that they wouldn't want to do this. I think I was too trusting of the protections that I might have as a result of an ethical workplace, the law on equal pay, um, and the fact that, you know, we're living in the 21st century. I just trusted too much. Um, and I really want to say to women, no, you can't afford to trust this environment. Your your boss may be ethical, but frankly, you know, there are all kinds of things about the pay structure that means it by its inbuilt bias, baked in bias of decades towards paying more men more often. And so start early, start as you mean to go on. Try to add up all the things that, that add value to your work. Try to make sure your boss knows them. Always make sure a new boss has your CV and knows the full range of your experience and your skills and all that you can offer. Um, And then just keep going and and make sure that your boss knows that equal pay matters to you. I mean, the law is there um, and and the law doesn't matter enough in our workplaces at the moment. I mean, you started, Harriet, by talking about the gender pay gap. I mean... Two-thirds of the gender pay gap in this country is unexplained. Mm. <laughs> and in some countries, I mean, the unexplained element of gender pay gap is enormous across all developed economies. And that is where the dirty secret of unequal pay is hiding. I mean, I'm not saying it's the whole of... The, I'm not yeah. saying for a minute there's the whole of the unexplained pay gap, but I believe it's a, it's a significant part. And so being confident, being assertive... Knowing your knowing what you're contributing, making sure that the gender pay gap does not open up for you. We don't have a good enough cure at the moment. The law doesn't operate well enough. It's too expensive. I mean, this is something again. When I contemplated, I I, I believe I only won my case because I was determined to go to law at the end. Mm. And I think my employer felt, oh my gosh, she is mad, bad, and dangerous enough to actually <laughs> do this thing, despite the fact that it's career suicide often it's financial suicide i mean it's because it's going to cost you so much to get to court it's going to damage your mental health every woman i know who has gone to employment tribunal to fight this battle has talked about the mental health damage it's cost them so basically mad bad and dangerous to me equals badass (laughs) and there's a point in so chapter six in the book um you've got a, a piece here that talks about the art of war let your plans be dark and impenetrable as night and when you move fall like a thunderbolt you were on the today program your letters coming out in the times what the hell were you thinking at that moment as in were you like this is about to yeah i mean it was a crazy 24 hours or so in fact it was a crazy week um because it was also the week that it was the week that began with all of that that Mm -hmm. you described it was the week that ended with john sopel and john humphreys kind of in that tape Mm -hmm. and all all that stuff going down um on the night that i um you know that i was planning the letter coming out and i was going to be presenting the today program the next day and then when i was going in to present the today program i was like 
oh, what am I doing? I was in free fall. Yeah. Um, and yet, um, and yeah, I was proud of all of us. I was proud that I had not taken this nonsense lying down. Yeah. I was proud of all the women who were getting ready to stand behind me. Um, and um, did other people know the thunderbolt was coming, or were you the, you the only one that knew the thunderbolt? No, no, other women. I mean, when you know, when you get a chance to read the book, in I do set it all out. Like the there was, I had a group around me who were you know close formation Roman army tortoise, <laughs> all ready to go, and um, and then the wider BBC Women group. But but even saying all that, so I had phenomenal support. I had a great lawyer. Mm. I had my union behind me. I had these amazing BBC women behind me. I had a lot of, um, you know, support from great men who wanted to help because they knew that women need help to do this. So I, and yet, and yet, it was a frightening and lonely thing to do mm. in despite of all of that. And so I really feel for women who have to do it on their own, which is why I gave the money away to the Fawcett Society to yes. set up the Equal Pay Advice Service to provide free legal advice for women on in low-paid jobs without union support because I knew how terrifying and isolating and belittling and, uh, I mean, it's just... And gaslighting, yeah. you know, those experiences are. But one thing I would say, that moment in the Today studio just before the lights went green and we went to speak to the nation, me and John Humphreys, for three hours of, you know, crazy radio, I felt very small. And then, and this is important, I think, for all women, um, I, was, I got lucky. The universe just, just smiled at me because the prime minister was revamping her cabinet bringing in more women. And so there was a kind of the, the top news story was about, you know, refreshing what they described as a pale male stale cabinet. The second story was the Golden Globes. And there was a clip of Oprah Winfrey. And she was going, you know, in her absolute inimitable, powerful voice, you know, time's up, yeah. you know, speak your truth. And it was just like, I was sitting there feeling small in that studio. It's like, oh, yeah. Thank you, Oprah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Let's do this thing. Yeah. And so that thing about, you know, listening to an inspiring role model, female role model, when you as a woman are about to do something which is terrifying, listening to somebody who gives you strength uh, just before you go do that thing, I think it's very helpful and we should all do it. <laughs> Carrie, listening you're to crying. you is just... I am. I'm actually emotional about that. I get emotional when I think incredible women stand up for other women mm. and change the world for all of us. And I do get very emotional about that. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to apologise for that. <laughs> Carrie, your book Equal is out now. It is all about this and the things you've learned since. Um, if there is one lesson from the book that you could give to our audience today, what would it be? Don't beat yourself up because you didn't start already. Start now. And don't beat yourself up if you don't get it right immediately because if you stand up for yourself, even in a little small way, by saying to your boss, you know, sometime this year I'd like to have a conversation about pay, even if you just do that, and even if the conversation doesn't go right, and even if you think you didn't handle it right, you're already doing something. Mm -hmm. And you're doing something for you, you're doing something for the women around you, you're doing something to honour the women who came before you and you're doing something on behalf of all the women who come after you. So be proud of whatever the thing is that you can do, the smallest thing, even if you're just thinking about it, even if you're just writing it down to yourself that at some point you're going to do it, even if it's not today, this week, this year, make a start. Carrie Gracie, thank you so much for joining us on Badass Women's Out. You are everything we wanted you to be. You are our absolute heroine. Thank you so much for coming. That was the incredible Carrie Gracie. Coming up next, Mandy Reid talks about why we need a political party just for women and how women can actually change the political process. But we're going to talk now to a woman who wants to change some things, and we're very excited about that. Mandy Reid, leader of the Women's Equality Party, welcome to Badass Women's Hour. Hi, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we've just been chatting about the advertising stereotypes, so I'm going to get your view quickly. What do you think? Do you think it's going to help? What, changing the... Yes, yeah. of course it will. Um, I was with um, some senior folks from Unilever earlier this week and they reach every single day 2 billion people around the wow. world with um, all of the content they put out to support and promote their products. And, you know, young kids, that's often their first exposure they get to what norms are. And so, of course, it creates a kind of climate where um, the impressions and ambitions and imagination people have around what's possible for them in their life, um, they have huge 
huge power and influence over that. So it's a big deal. You mustn't underestimate how important this is. I was celebrating this week when that, when that <laughs> um, kind of news came to the fore. Fingers crossed it makes a difference. I really hope so. Uh, now, Amanda, you are the leader of the Women's Equality Party. Here at Badass Women's Out, all three of us, me, Emma and Amanda, we are all paid-up members whoop, of the whoop. Women's Equality Party. We love it. My kind of women. <laughs> but... I feel like not enough people out there know you, know who you are, know what you do. So tell us a little bit about the history of the Women's Equality Party sure. and then what it aims to do. So um, we are kind of new kids on the block mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to politics in Britain. We're only four years old and we were founded because um, it was pretty clear when you looked at the political establishment that there wasn't enough ambition from any of the major political parties and not enough of the major politicians around gender equality. And so we exist really to um, create a scenario where we lead the way and show the main and major actors what they ought to be doing if they're serious about gender equality. And we're different from other political parties because a political party normally, normally what it wants to do is perpetuate its existence into eternity. We don't want to do that. I would like to be lying on a beach in Barbados in 10 years because our work is done because the other players out there have stepped up their game and taken the issues that we champion and we fight for a lot more seriously and you are the first black leader not even the first black female leader the first black leader of any uk political party that's right any national political party yeah. why has it taken till 2019 for that to happen well it's it's straightforward really you know we have um across our culture across our country all sorts of in some cases it's invisible but structural inequality that makes it more difficult for people of certain backgrounds certain demographic characteristics be they women be they people of color be they disabled people makes it much more difficult for them to fulfill their potential and so in my case um, I am uh, a black woman and so there are at least two uh, you yeah. know, facets of that inequality that, that would be working kind of against me having a smooth path towards some of the things that I want to achieve. And, and, and it really boils down to that. And I actually was a little bit nervous about uh, kind of stepping up to this, to this role because I, I didn't want it to be seen as um, a kind of tokenistic thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was anxious I'd be seen in that way. I was also anxious that it would be, um, that it, there would be a lot of hazards, you know? Look at Diane Abbott, how much yeah. kind of grief she gets. And that primarily is because she is a black woman. But in the end, it feels right because uh, linking to the discussion you were having earlier about advertising, I think having people visible doing things in, in places where they may not have been welcome or may not have been well represented actually is not window dressing. It's a huge deal and it sets an example. And so I'm going to try my best to set a good example. How has it been for you so far? Because it is... I think you put yourself on a, you know, on a platform to really receive all the abuse, all the hate, all the difficult questions... Being a politician at the best of times is not a loved job. Being a politician of an emerging party that doesn't have huge amounts of support, huge amounts of money, huge platforms to talk about, and a black woman, all of this all together, how are you dealing with all that? Well, um, you know, I have a kind of cocktail of emotions yeah. around it. Um, contradictory emotions in some respects you know on the one hand I do feel humbled and I feel proud and those things are contradictory yeah. right on the other hand um, there are there are things that I'm frustrated about because um, our party is you know we're, we're a small party but a growing party and we actually don't get the airtime um, we deserve, yep. I, mm -hmm. I would argue. Mm -hmm. I would and agree. I want to do a comparison between, you know, our party and another party that tried to kind of, uh, you know, make its mark recently, mm -hmm. Change UK, right? Yep. Change UK had an abundance of resources that completely dwarfs what, what, what we have ever had, an abundance of press and airtime. And look how they've kind of fizzled out. 
into nothing. Here we are, four years later, still influencing. So on the one hand, I have a little bit of frustration yeah. because the um, establishment and the systems that, that govern how politics is choreographed in this country work against us. We have to struggle and grapple to get airtime for the things we're fighting for. Um, so that is frustrating. But on the other hand, I'm really proud that despite mm. all those things, yeah. we've already had an immense influence. Um, yeah. And we've done that on a shoestring. We've done that on the strength and passion and energy and commitment of our activists, of our people up and down the country. Four years, we've got 75 branches. We've got tens of thousands of reg registered supporters and members. And so actually, imagine if we did have the resources and press time uh, uh, an entity like Change UK or the Brexit party had. Imagine how quickly we could do the work that needs to be done to close the gender inequality gap. And I can go lie on the beach in Barbados. <laughs> Are there any examples, Mandy, where you've started a conversation that the mainstream parties have had to pick up and act on because you're raising the conversation. Yeah, there, there are a couple of examples of that. Um, one example is uh, the electoral contest for the Liverpool Metro mayor. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, We put our candidate in the mix for that. Brilliant woman. Get her on here, Tabitha Morton. Um, now, what she did was she um, made sure that the issue of ending violence against women and girls, domestic violence, was centred in her campaign. She gave it airtime. She stood up and spoke passionately about that every opportunity she got during the campaign. And what happened was Steve Rotherham, who was the, the Labour candidate, who was kind of a shoe-in, it's a, you know, Labour yep. do well in Liverpool, um, in, that, in that area, Merseyside, and so uh, what happened was um, he started talking about it, but that wasn't his plan A. He thought, hang on a minute, there's a threat here and I may well hemorrhage, particularly uh, women voters, if I don't pick this up. Not only, and credit to him, not only did he start talking about it in the campaign, when he was elected, he brought Tabitha in and together they developed a citywide strategy to tackle that issue that's funded and made a huge difference. If it wasn't for us, that issue would have not, not been surfaced during the campaign. Another example, uh, at the last Labour Party conference, J Jeremy Corbyn's flagship announcement, I mean, this is unprecedented, his flagship announcement was all about childcare. I mean, I give him a B- minus for it because it wasn't <laughs> ambitious enough. If he wants to know what needs to be done, plagiarise our damn manifesto, it's all there. But hey, his flagship <laughs> announcement was all about childcare, yeah? And that sort of thing, I think, is partly the result of us raising the profile of these issues and showing that it's politically expedient for those who do have power to take it on. And one last example, I've got to give you this example. Every time we stand, what we kind of see happening is that there's a higher probability of the other parties, because we like to announce our candidacies as early as we can, there's a higher probability of the other parties standing women, right? Mm -hmm. So that by itself creates... Uh, a, a significant movement towards one of our major goals, which is equal representation. They do that because of the threat we potentially pose. To neutralise the impact we have, they are more likely to put women up. That's what happened in the campaign I contested last year, the parliamentary by-election yep. in Lewisham East. Um, that's what happened. In fact, it was... Yeah. So those are three pretty solid examples, I think, of can how I, we actually do have an influence. Can I ask, Women's Equality Party, yeah. obviously when it launched, everyone, why has it got women in the title? Yeah. Is it just about women? <laughs> Where's the Men's Where's Equality the Party? Where's the Men's Equality Party? <laughs> no. Um, would you ever stand a male candidate? Um, when the uh, representation in, across politics is sorted out, why not? Let's yeah. talk about it then. But for now, until while we have a situation where um, you know women are outnumbered uh, two to one in, in Parliament, and you know the figures are even worse when you look at kind of local government representation, it wouldn't make sense. One of our goals is equal representation. I want men in this party, though, and I want men who see this as a problem and are prepared to fight alongside us to change it. And when they've done that leg work and when we've got equal representation we may well stand men as candidates who knows but i think we're a long way off that fabulous we're going to keep talking to mandy here on badass women's hour excel badass women's hour excel on talk radio she'll get you talking even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We are talking to Mandy Reid, leader of the Women's Equality Party. Uh, Mandy, before the break, we were talking about the way that the Women's Equality Party has influenced the policies of some of the other parties. Is your goal to influence or is it to obtain power? Uh, it's it's a bit of both, of mm. course. Um, as I say, because we're smaller and have um, less resources than some of the big players out there, we do have to, to an extent, resort to guerrilla tactics. Yeah. And we're operating in a system that's heavily stacked against us. So in a, in a kind of parliamentary contest where it's first past the post, it is very difficult for us. Yeah. I mean, look how hard the Greens had to fight to win yeah. their one seat and look how hard they have to fight to keep hold of that seat. But of course we will contest for all the reasons I've already explained because we do exert an influence. But there are situations, for example, um, May next year, London 2020, um, that is a proportional representation system in, in London to elect the mayor and the uh, London Assembly. Um, we're going to win a seat then. Yay. And uh, we nearly did. We were six months old the last time we contested. Yeah. We had no name recognition and we got within a whisker. UKIP yeah. have two seats on the London Assembly and um, they're not going to hold on to those seats. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to say though on that is we have elected our very first uh, uh, we have had the first Women's Equality Party elected official in place so I want to like give it up for Kay Wesley in Congleton who was elected at the last local elections and she has already made a blistering start to kind of influencing changing things and shaking things up in East Cheshire. That's amazing. I think it's so interesting when we think about politics to think that it is all just at that kind of top senior level and not to realise actually the influence and difference you can make through local government and local elections. Um, I have to also ask you about the Tory leadership race <laughs> because I opened the paper this morning and I was confronted with this, I think we're, I think we're currently on six, six candidates. <laughs> it might have changed in between then and now, who knows. Uh, and they were all men. Yep. There was only one man who was not a white man. Um, and I looked at it, they'd all been, I think with the exception of one, they've all been to public school with, uh, they've all been through the same university system. How do you think we even begin to change politics when that is still the dominant background of people, when it is still dominated by white men who have been to private schools, who have been to top-tier universities, and they're just bringing their mates in, left, right and centre. It felt, when I saw that picture, I honestly, I felt really, I felt depressed by our political system. Is yeah, it going to change? Tell me What's your it. view on it? Well, um, what do we do about it? I think we have to hold our nerve. We really have to. Um, and what I mean by that is we have to stick to what we think is right and what really matters rather than what is convenient. Mm. Because when it comes down to it, um, there is a kind of long established tradition of who wields power, who holds on to power in this country. That doesn't dissolve itself overnight. And my God, does it cling. 
But what, what I believe is that even when there's the temptation to kind of um, shift towards something that, like, change our name to just the Equality yeah. Party or shift towards something that looks like it might make us more palatable, I think that is actually what the system wants us to do. Nothing would make Boris Johnson and all those folks on that list of candidates happier than if we started to kind of compromise and melt into um, the status quo they are clinging on to so desperately. Um, so I think we're at a stage now, and I want, I want to say this because there are reasons to be optimistic, even though it feels very bleak and glum and dark and miserable yeah. when you look at politics in this country. The old status quo, I believe, is fracturing. It is in an advanced state of disintegration. These divisions within the Tory party, within the Labour party, have reached this kind of crisis point, and I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't some serious fracturing that happens over the next 12 months. We need to be there, and we will be there, to be a positive influence when all that kind of chaos starts to take hold. How do you feel about the idea, though, of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister? Um, I feel really depressed at that prospect because, you know, the office of prime minister is, it is, it's the highest political seat in the land and one of the most influential kind of political roles in the world. Britain hasn't yep. quite yet um, vanished into total irrelevance, but who knows what will happen with Brexit and how that kind of pans out. So for me, to have somebody who um, has demonstrated time and time again that they have a kind of total disregard for um, the dignity of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people around the world by the comments that they've made, mm -hmm. um, who has prioritised time and time again their own kind of political career over the people they're supposedly supposed to represent, I do feel really disappointed. But on the other hand, the advantage having someone like him in post gives people like us is you can no longer um, hide behind this thing of plausible deniability. Because yep. a lot of people say, oh, is it really needed? Do you really need... Uh, parties like you doing what you do and I always say yes but this actually makes the case for us um, in nice shorthand if people like that can wield power um, at having he's never kind of really apologized in fact this week when he was confronted by the journalist at the launch of his conference he just said people really want to know don't they um, what politicians think so he reinforced the fact that some of those terrible things he says are his true view so on the other hand it, it, it means people who might be a bit iffy about whether there really is disadvantage in this country, injustice that needs to be tackled, he makes the point for us that, of course, there damn well is. And so work needs to be done. Come and join us to actually take that fight to uh, the people who are clinging on to the old status quo. We've talked a lot tonight about that sort of the, the typical background, the typical kind of politicians and, and you, you know, you as a, uh, the party being the disruptors. What's been your background to get you into the position that you are now? Have mm -hmm. you come through... I mean, I, I know little about, you know, the road to get you to, to politics, but we know that a lot of them come from the same... But, um, the same kind of journey. What's been your background to get into politics? Um... First of all, I really didn't expect to. I'm 38 years old to find myself doing what I'm doing right now. That that was not something I would have predicted. Um, however, I've always I grew up um, in Southern Africa in the shadow of apartheid South Africa. My mum's black, my dad's white, and the existence of our family was politically significant because of that. And so, from a young age, the idea of injustice being a very kind of poignant, obvious, in-your-face thing that needs to be challenged was just part of my my makeup. I'll confess that. And this may be weird as the leader of the Women's Equality Party, I wasn't, I was a kind of late developer when it comes to feminism. Um, I was much more tuned into the kind of inequality from the point of view of racial inequality. And it took me until my mid 20s to really appreciate that my God, there's work to do on the gender inequality front and there's probably a lot more work to do when you look at it from some perspectives. And then some personal experiences really influenced my journey. Um, I was a member of the Labour Party for a short while. In 2010, I joined the Labour Party and tried to get involved locally, but that didn't work for me. Um, I, I joined because I wanted to... I knew what would happen with austerity and I was terrified of the havoc that would wreak and I wanted to be part of tackling it. Anyway, never mind that. After my experience in the Labour Party, I vowed never to join a political party. <laughs> when I was 33, I uh, got pregnant um, and it wasn't planned and... Um, 
the dad was a little bit younger than me um, and we had conversations about what to do and uh, I... It's strange to say it, but neither of us could imagine a situation where I wasn't going to be the sole or main caregiver of the child. Neither of us could even imagine that when we were discussing how to deal with this. Um, and what that, in the end, I wanted to pursue some of my career ambitions. I looked, I crunched the numbers, I looked at the cost of having a young child in full-time childcare in London. It's about 20 grand a year, mm -hmm. um, five days a week, 10 hours a day. I, that, that wasn't going to be compatible with my kind of plans for my career, my ambitions, the potential in myself that I wanted to fulfill. So I had an abortion. Um, and actually, when I discovered the Women's Equality Party and I learned about the policies we're fighting for in relation to equal parenting and caregiving, I realized that this isn't just interesting, this is something that I've got to get involved in and involved in a hands-on way. Because if those policies were the real deal, if those yeah. were the law, I could have made a different decision mm -hmm. when I was age 33 yeah. and be able to balance the things Things that I wanted to balance and possibly all this stuff about stereotypes and whatever else um, if, if we were further along with that maybe me and this man would have been able to imagine him mm. having a more hands-on <laughs> yeah. role you know so yeah. it's a huge deal some of these things that look like they're just surface they are not surface and so for me I joined the Women's Equality Party because I saw in our manifesto something that would have been transformative for me and no doubt transformative for millions of women and men mm. all around the country and so it was really that that propelled me and here I am today. Yeah. <laughs> We're so pleased you are. If people want to join the Women's Equality Party, one thing I will say is you can join the Women's Equality Party and be a member of another political party. Oh, no yes. one else lets you do that. No, we, we, I have no problem with political <laughs> promiscuity, actually. That does make us different from some of the other parties. We will work with um, people that share our values, but if they have some other stuff that they're also committed to, other allegiances, whatever. Yeah. Uh, you absolutely should. Where can people find out more about the Women's Equality Party? Um, they can go to our website, of course, womensequalityparty.org.uk, or you can come to um, a party we're having on the 27th of June. Um, Sandy Toxvig is doing a, her one-woman show at the Hackney Empire. It's a Amazing. fundraiser for the Women's Equality Party, but she's funny, so you'll yeah. get to have a laugh, <laughs> as well as contributing to our mission to kind of consign gender inequality to the dustbin of history. So come Amazing. to that. Come to that. I'll thank be there. You. Andy, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to us. We've loved having you. Mandy Reid, leader of the Women's Equality Party. Before you go, who would you want to win the Tory leadership race? Is oh, there I, anyone? I can't. That is a poison chalice. I, <laughs> I would all... Oh. You know what? Yeah. Um, I thought Matt Hancock was the best of a bad bunch, yeah. but he's bowed out he's now. Gonna. I'm disappointed because I could just about have stomached him being in charge. Jeremy Hunt? Um, no. <laughs> no. Zero. I'm sorry, I refuse to kind of uh, pledge allegiance to any of those. Thank you so much for joining us. One, two, three, four! That's all from this week's show. We'll be back next week as normal with yet more badass women. If you like the show, please subscribe, review, give us five stars. It makes such a difference and we will love you forever. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.